millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Censored, a podcast for smut seekers. Whenever books were banned... Critics complained that the resulting blacklist would be used by the prurient to read dirty books. They were right. I am filthy-minded enough to read books from the blacklist, purely for the smut swearing and shagging. And I'm going to share the fruits of my degenerate reading habits with you, because talking about smut is as much fun as reading it. There's a book list on my website, censor.ie, for anyone who wants to read along or ahead. Like everything, the pandemic lockdown has determined how this podcast will unfold. I cannot feature many books because the libraries are still closed. So I'm working from my own shelves and whatever is available as an ebook. When I started this, I was surprised that I owned so many formerly banned books, but then I remembered that the blacklist includes over 12,000 books, many of them modern classics. This episode features one of those classic books, Dharma Bums, by famous American author Jack Kerouac. His best-known book is On the Road. I did once own it, but I got rid of it, because when bookshelf space is finite, only books I really like get to stay. And I didn't like Kerouac. I thought he was a pretentious wanker, but his work is canonically important, so what would I know? I'm fairly sure this copy of Dharma Bums actually belongs to my other half, otherwise it would have gone to the charity shop. Usually, I argue that life is too short for bad books, but I am willing to make an exception for saucy books. And the Irish censor was right. There were indecent passages in Dharma Bums. As for a suitable drink, poor Kerouac died an alcoholic at the tragically young age of 47, so maybe it's not appropriate to drink when considering his work. This book is about Kerouac's search for spiritual enlightenment, and he tries to abstain from alcohol and drugs in his quest to find nirvana. He eats a lot of rice and beans, which is fitting in these pandemic pantry days, 
but tries not to consume intoxicants. However, he doesn't always succeed, and his tipple of choice is red wine when he does fall off the wagon, so I'll go with that. To really capture the atmosphere, I should probably be drinking Plonk, because the drinking vibe is very student house party, where quantity is more important than quality. Time to pour a glass of cheap red wine and settle in for some sex and a lot of Buddhism. By page 26, the censor was sure he was going to ban this book. The main relationship in the book is between the narrator, Ray Smith, a version of Kerouac himself, and Jaffe Ryder, a fictionalised version of Gary Snyder, a beat poet. Smith has a serious crush on Jaffe, and the whole book is structured around Jaffe revealing the secrets of the universe to Smith. I'm being snarky, but it really is a first-class bromance. As well as talking about tantras in Eastern philosophy, Jaffe introduces Smith to Buddhist ritual sex. Nothing in this book is without religious or spiritual significance, so the sex scene has to be ritualised too. Jaffe shows up at the house Smith shares with another man called Alva, accompanied by a young woman called Princess. And I'm going to read out the description of Princess from page 26. Princess had grey eyes and yellow hair and was very beautiful and only 20. I must say one thing about her. She was sex-mad and man-mad, so there wasn't much of a problem in persuading her to play Yabium. Don't you know about Yabium, Smith? said Jaffe in his big, booming voice, striding in in his boots holding Princess's hand. Princess and I come here to show you, boy. I'm sorry, but this is just such pretentious wank that I don't want to read it, but we're here for the smut, not literary criticism. Naturally, it's Princess who's sex-mad, not Jaffe, Smith or Alva or any of the other men in this particular story. Smith had no idea what Yabium was and was aghast to see everyone else in the room taking their clothes off and throwing them every which way. Jaffe then demonstrated Yabium. He sat in a lotus position with a naked princess in his lap and explained the ceremonial importance thus. And this is from page 27. This is what they do in the temples of Tibet. It's a holy ceremony. It's done just like this in front of chanting priests. People pray and recite Om Mani Padma Hum, which means Amen the thunderbolt in the dark void. I'm the thunderbolt and princess is the dark void, you see. <sighs> Such bullshit. A complicating factor for Smith was that he had been in love or lust with this woman for the previous year and had had conscience-stricken hours over whether she was too young to seduce. On a personal level, he's pretty horrified to witness her naked in another man's arms. But really, his biggest problem is that he has been celibate for a year because he has some serious hang-ups about sex. And he explains these further down the page on page 27. I'd also gone through an entire year of celibacy based on my feelings that lust was the direct cause of birth which was the direct cause of suffering and death, and I had really, no lie, come to a point where I regarded lust as offensive and even cruel. And when he was in Mexico, he oogled the beautiful women involuntarily while repeating to himself, pretty girls make graves. Typically, he's a man who blames his horniness on the existence of women. 
It's only the foundation of the patriarchy, but Smith seems to believe it's a radical new philosophy that he's just discovered. But regardless of his spiritual practices and personal discomfort, he eventually reluctantly joins in the group sex. And this is from page 27 over into page 28. I was still afraid to take my clothes off. Also, I never liked to do that in front of more than one person, especially with men around. But Jaffe didn't give a goddamn hoot and holler about any of this, and pretty soon he was making Princess happy. And then Alva had a turn, with his big serious eyes staring in the dim light, and him reading poems a minute ago. So I said, how about me starting to work on her arm? Go ahead, great which I did, lying down on the floor with all my clothes on and kissing her hand, then her wrist, then up to her body as she laughed and almost cried with delight, everybody everywhere working on her. All the peaceful celibacy of my Buddhism was going down the drain. Smith, I distrust any kind of Buddhism or any kind of philosophy or social system that puts down sex, said Jaffe quite scholarly now that he was done. It ended up with everybody naked and finally making gay pots of coffee in the kitchen and Princess on the kitchen floor, naked with her knees clasped in her arms, lying on her side, just for nothing, just to do it. In many ways, this sex scene is quite comical. The idea of a fully clothed smith lying down next to three naked people is inherently ridiculous. But it's also a scene in which Princess doesn't really exist as a human being, when Smith wants to join in, he asks Jaffe for permission. He doesn't ask Princess about her own body. And the orgy concludes with everybody in the kitchen where she's curled up on a fetal position on the floor. I don't know, it doesn't sound great. Maybe she had a great time, but it doesn't sound very good. Smith has a bath with Princess later, where she says she's Mother Earth. And he claims that her only way of being a big Buddhist was to have sex with men. And this is from page 28, where Smith gives Princess's explanation for her participation in the ritualized sex. I realised she wanted to be a big Buddhist like Jaffe, and being a girl, the only way she could express it was this way, which had its traditional roots in the Yabiyum ceremony of Tibetan Buddhism. So everything was fine. <sighs> I may combust from the sexist bullshit peddled as theology in this piece. Obviously, the censor would ban a book with group sex in it, even if the narrator had qualms about it. And it isn't an explicit sex scene. All the sex is framed in religious terms or obliquely. For example, the sex begins very euphemistically, where the men begin to explore the territory that is princess. So it's hardly explicit. My big problem with this sex scene is not the explicit nature of it, but that princess is sex mad and wants to be a big Buddhist, so it's all fine. Once the sex is over, the lads then discuss Zen-free love lunacy orgies, which they plan to have every Thursday. Nothing says free love lunacy like comparing diaries. So concludes the first orgy of my podcast series, and the only sex scene in this book. Although maybe it's not really an orgy, because the lads don't seem to have sex with each other, just with the one woman present. It's hardly an indiscriminate sexual free-for-all. As far as we know, from the way it's written, the men didn't touch each other. The next significant smutty scene is page 109, when Smith is in Mexico, 
showing a truck driver the flesh pots of real Mexico, where there were girls at a peso a dance and raw tequila and lots of fun. He writes, Somewhere during the night, we hooked up with a coloured guy who was some kind of queer, but was awfully funny, and led us to a whorehouse, and then as we were coming out, a Mexican cop relieved him of his snap knife. So there's a bit of casual homophobia thrown in here. There's no actual sex described, but the explicit reference to sex work is definitely unacceptable to a censor. Unfortunately, that's it. That's all the sex there is in Dharma Bums. This seems surprising, because the beat generation were seen as loose living and immoral, with dangerous notions about the foundations of society. This quote from Life magazine summarises what they believed the beats were against. Mom, dad, politics, marriage, the savings bank, organised religion, literary elegance, law, the Ivy League suit and higher education, to say nothing of the automatic dishwasher, the cellophane-wrapped soda cracker, the split-level house and the clean or peace-provoking H-bomb. The Beats' critique of American society was profoundly unsettling for those invested in the status quo. But sadly for a filthy-minded reader like me, this book is not crammed with sex. Quite the opposite, Smith is abstaining deliberately from sex and seems disgusted by its existence a lot of the time. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And weirdly, his celibacy in search for spiritual fulfilment would also have offended the Irish censor. You'd think Smith's refusal to engage in extramarital sex would be seen as positive, but the motivation was deeply offensive. Kerouac was raised as a Roman Catholic, 
But this book is about his quest for a new type of spirituality based on Buddhism. Now he shamelessly borrows from any theology, Christian or Buddhist, to construct his personal spirituality. A la carte religion is now standard practice in Western culture. We consciously reject aspects of a theology that we don't like, while embracing bits we do like and adding them to agreeable bits of another faith system. So people who don't think baptism is an essential part of Christianity will go to church and also practice yogic meditation. But when Kerouac wrote Dharma Bums, Christianity was still relatively unchallenged in Western culture. For official Ireland, Christianity, specifically Roman Catholicism, was the only acceptable faith. As far as the Irish censor was concerned, the very premise of Dharma Bums was obscene in religious terms. I debated a lot over this episode title, and I'll admit that I went for one little orgy for shameless clickbait reasons. My other choice was Bromance, because this book is structured around the unequal relationship between Smith and Jaffe. They didn't have sex with each other during the orgy, but Smith adores Jaffe so much that I'd be surprised if he wasn't a bit disappointed by that. He has a massive, profound crush on Jaffe. It's Jaffe who persuades him to abandon his celibacy, possibly the only person who could convince Smith to see his spiritual quest in sexual terms. This book is a chronicle of a bromance. Smith follows him around, does what Jaffe says, and admires his greater spiritual understanding. The most luminous, memorable part of the book is when Jaffe, Smith and a bloke called Morley head off to the Sierra Mountains for some spiritual awakening. Or a lad's weekend away, as we would call it now. His descriptions of their time on the mountain are quite compelling. It's entrancing at times. You kind of sink into the language when he really gets going. But here is his description of Jaffe, which really explains just how much he holds him in esteem. But Jaffe had on his fine big boots and his little green Swiss cap with feather and looked elfin but rugged. I see the picture of him alone in the mountains in that outfit, the vision. It's pure morning in the high, dry Sierras. Far-off clean firs can be seen shadowing the sides of Rocky Hill. Further yet, snow-capped pinpoints, nearer the big bushy forms of pines. And there's Jaffe in his little cap, with a big rucksack on his back, clomping along. But with a flower in his left hand, which is hooked to the strap of the rucksack at his breast. Grass grows out between crowded rocks and boulders. Distant sweeps of scree can be seen making gashes down the sides of morning. His eyes shine with joy. He's on his way. He's small and has a funny kind of belly coming out as he strides. But it's not because his belly is big. It's because his spine curves a bit. But that's offset by the vigorous long steps he takes. Actually the long steps of a tall man, as I found out following him uphill and his chest is deep and shoulders broad. That's all one sentence, by the way, and it's an attempt to capture both the visual impressions and his emotional relationship with Jaffe. Their time in the mountains is a classic love triangle, because Jaffe doesn't prefer Smith over Morley, but Smith wishes desperately that Morley would just go away. And when he does, about one day in, Smith is deliriously happy that he can spend uninterrupted hours in Jaffe's company, experiencing the wilderness with his spiritual guide. And the best writing in this whole Lad's Weekend Away section 
is around hiking with Jaffe and their experiences in the wilderness. And I'm going to read you this part from page 52, just because I think it's really beautiful. It's not smutty, but it does deserve to be read. Then also, as we went on climbing, we began getting more casual and making funnier silly talk, and pretty soon we got to a bend in the trail, where it was suddenly glady and dark with shade, and a tremendous cataracting stream was bashing and frothing over scummy rocks and tumbling on down, and over the stream was a perfect bridge formed by a fallen snag. We got on it and lay belly down and dunked our heads down, hair wet, and drank deep as the water splashed in our faces, like sticking our head by the jet of a dam. I lay there a good long minute enjoying the sudden coolness. Since this is a bromance, women don't get much of a role in the book. The disintegration of the only woman with a real name, as opposed to being called Princess or Psyche, is pretty telling. Rosie appears on page 17 as a real gone chick, who was a writer, but is now in love with Smith's buddy, Cody. When she reappears on page 93, she's a skeletal, trembling, terrified mess with scars from self-harm on her arms. She then takes her own life. From creator to muse to suicide victim is a pretty grim trajectory. And the sainted Jaffe has pretty weird attitudes to his own sister, asking her fiancé about his preferred sex positions for the honeymoon. On page 155, Smith asks Jaffe if he loves his sister, to which he replies, You're damn right, I ought to marry her myself. I mean, maybe this is normal bloke talk, but the incest vibe is kind of creepy. And I don't think it's usual to ask your siblings' partners about their sex lives. Smith's own mother features in the book as a dishwashing beacon of home, but not as a living, breathing character in her own right. He travels home to his mother's house to live rent-free for the winter. He then repays his sainted mother by trying to convert her to his unique version of spiritual enlightenment. Now, no one should take free food and offer unsolicited religion in return. It's just rude. And anyone whose family members are borderline zealots will feel very sorry for Smith's mother here. But because she's a good mammy, she buys him new shoes. Soon afterwards, he puts them on and hikes across America to see Jaffe again. You could argue that she enables his idleness, but I'd buy my mansplaining child a pair of boots if it meant he took his pontificating ass out of my kitchen. Travel holds this plotless, meandering book together. It's a pilgrimage journey, where Smith uses travel to find himself and his understanding of the world. But this is not a pilgrimage on a defined route with places of prayer or spiritual importance along the way determined by an organised system of religion. Smith's pilgrimage is an individual journey motivated by a character's internal quest and his devotion to Jaffe, because Jaffe suggests destinations as well as helping him buy his fancy rucksack. For a lot of women readers, Smith's type of solo travel, hitching lifts, boarding trains and sleeping rough, seems like a pipe dream. I'm not saying women never travel like this, but for most of us, an internalised awareness of our vulnerability makes even dreaming of such behaviour difficult. The reality of gendered violence means that the aspiration to travel alone, to dance around a campfire on a beach and commune with nature, is a very masculine vision of freedom. Obviously, Smith never meets any women travellers in his peregrinations. 
His female characters are mothers, wives and girlfriends rather than independent beings with personalities beyond their relationships to men. Apart from the regressive gender politics of this book, I find it deeply unsympathetic because it's so indulgent. It's a chronicle of a gap year with fancy backpacks and boozy parties. Those endless conversations about the meaning of life should never be recorded for posterity. They're always boring and unoriginal. I'm not saying this version of feckless student life isn't fun or unprofitable, but it's better in the moment than recorded verbatim, as it is in Dharma Bums. This book seems like a key text in Western culture, even if it's not as famous as his earlier novel On the Road. Taking a year or two to travel to see the world and broaden one's personal horizons is now standard practice for middle-class privileged young people. The hippie trail across India began in the 60s after this book was published. Reading Eastern texts or travelling to monasteries for enlightenment is old hat now. Everyone does it. Young travellers now scramble to find experiences that are unusual or esoteric when anyone with an internet connection can book a yoga retreat in a Tibetan monastery. What Smith and Jaffe started in the 1950s has become a massive international tourist phenomenon with far-reaching implications for climate and culture. Kerouac was a philosophical travel pioneer in Dharma Bums, but pioneering literature often doesn't date very well. The premise of this book now seems dated and embarrassingly naive. Now, the wilderness settings are stunningly written, even if you don't much like Kerouac or find his meandering a bit self-indulgent, you cannot fail to be seduced by his writing. If there was more nature and less striving towards nirvana, it would have been less radical at the time, but perhaps more readable now. To finish up, what is Dharma Bum's score in Censorship Bingo? Firstly, we have an orgy in which sex is disguised as religion. There's a reference to sex work in Mexico. There's that brief reference to a queer man that Smith met in Mexico, so that's LGBTQI. Although I feel like I need a special square for homophobia as distinct from just describing LGBTQI content. And finally, of course, blasphemy. The fundamental premise of the book is for a lot of Christians, probably still for a lot of Christians, fundamentally blasphemous. But I think there aren't enough squares on my bingo card once again. I would like to mark off Jaffe's weird marrying sister comment as incest, and I think that Rosie's death through suicide would offend censors in a society where suicide was very much a taboo. So in total, on my current bingo card, Dharma Bums scores just 4 out of 25. The sexual encounters are not explicit or gratuitous, although the gender politics of the orgy are pretty odious. By banning this book, the censor shielded Irish people from an opportunity to critique American family values. And that's an important omission in a country with a long-standing tradition of emigration to the States. I'm not sure many people would have gained from reading about nymphomaniac yoga goddesses, but I can't say the descriptions of explicit sex would have corrupted the average Irish reader. There isn't any swearing or drug-taking to shock an innocent. I'd rate it as fairly inoffensive in terms of explicit content, but seriously dodgy in relation to gender politics. The next episode will feature another American author, Kathleen Windsor. She's not as famous as Jack Kerouac, but she certainly sold a lot of copies in her day. 
Her restoration bodice ripper, Forever Amber, was censored in Ireland in 1945. The book was a bestseller in Britain and America, but banned in Ireland and Australia. So what was all the fuss about? Let's hope we get some serious smut set in 17th century England. In the meantime, go for a walk, be at one with nature, and think pure thoughts, as Jack Kerouac would have wanted you to do.